Hi, I'm Bethany Godso, the Associate Vice President for Career and Leadership Development at the NYU Wasserman Center, and this is All in a Day's Work, the podcast we've created for you. The NYU network is expansive, and each member of our community has an array of unique experiences. All in a Day's Work will bring you episodes featuring members of the NYU community doing interesting work and navigating the professional world. We're excited to share their stories with you. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Joe Mercadante, and I'm very excited today to have Christina Varade join us to talk a little bit about her story. So, Christina, can you start by giving us a brief overview of what you studied as an undergrad and what your path has been like to becoming a faculty member? The path that I had was pretty straightforward. I began my undergraduate degree at Mount Holyoke College, and I began to focus on my English and Italian literature at that point. I had already experienced my love of Irish culture and literature. However, I hadn't yet fostered the love of Italian language. I did take a class with a wonderful professor named Angelo Mazzocco, and he has fostered my love of Italian literature and culture at Mount Holyoke. From my bachelor's at Mount Holyoke, I went on to NYU to pursue the master's, and that was at Glucksman Ireland House and the Casa Italiana. After the master's, I decided to change the path a little bit and applied for the PhD at CUNY, where I was able to work a little more clearly and closely in my comparative literature specialization with Italian. At the same time, I had been adjuncting. I was teaching humanities at the Townsend Harris High School Queens College uh, Honors in the Humanities program, and I was also acting as an adjunct at CUNY with Queens College in the Italian department. I was asked to become a full-time substitute at the Burr Manhattan Community College, and then after that, I was accepted on the tenure track in 2012. So you talked about how you study comparative literature with the focus on intersection between Irish and Italian literature. Can you talk a little bit about what are some of the benefits and maybe drawbacks of picking an interdisciplinary field of study? I would say the benefits definitely outweigh the drawbacks. One of the things is this really fits into a world, our world today, a contemporary one that looks to break down strict barriers of genre and of profession. And also, when you're so focused on one kind of a field, it can become totally overwhelming. You get burnout and you get frustrated. And what's nice about working in an interdisciplinary field is that you can always take a break. You can always say, hey, wait a minute, I'm just going to stop this particular point of my research right now. And I think I'll go over and I'll try to do work on the other part for a little bit. There are drawbacks, obviously, as well. I'd say the biggest one of it is that sometimes there's the perception that you're not necessarily an expert in your field because you haven't given 100% of your attention to one particular aspect. And I'd say this was more prevalent in the past. This is breaking down a little bit, fortunately. But still, there is a little bit that perception that, yeah, you might not be fully committed if you're not 100% in one field. The other drawback is that, and it's not necessarily a drawback, it's part of that well-rounded nature, you have to, to read and research twice as much. You have to be twice as good in the sense that you have so much more material to work with. So currently, you have a tenure-track position at BMCC, which is Borough of Manhattan Community College, for those who don't know. How do you manage to land that position? Can you just talk a little bit about that process of getting to where you are right now in that role? 
Sure, of course. So as I mentioned before, I had done a lot of time on the CUNY track as a student, as a PhD student, and at the time I had to teach at Queens College. And I do believe that had a good influence on my landing this particular position. The other thing was I talked a little bit about that luck. I was there in 2012, and I hear from colleagues that that was kind of the last widespread hiring year for these kinds of positions. So I was extremely fortunate that I ended my PhD in in May of 2012. I know things are much harder now, and I understand that. But I would say that my experience working across disciplines had a lot to do with why I was the chosen candidate. Not necessarily that I was any smarter or better than any of the other candidates, absolutely not. But I do believe that I was willing to take on a lot of different tasks. One of the questions that came up was, would you be happy to take on a study abroad position? While that's not necessarily what I do, of course I said, yes, I will do that. Also, being able to teach a variety of courses was very important. Having experience teaching a variety of courses, fundamental. I taught English in BMCC as an adjunct before, which I feel was important. Also the humanities courses, also being able to potentially teach French or Spanish if the need was there. I agree that flexibility and adaptability is so important. You talked a little about how you had multiple adjunct positions and it was difficult to getting where you are. So can you talk a little bit about what your challenges were during the time of getting your PhD and working adjuncts? Yes, adjuncting, I feel, is the most underrated position in academia these days. It is so important, and it's so, so stressful and time-consuming and difficult. And so I have an enormous respect for people that are doing it. So during the, this time, the challenges were, were really trying to balance doing the teaching, doing the grading, doing the commuting, and then going to class in the evening. And when I think back on it, I just don't know how I did it. It was just so, so challenging. I would begin at 5.30 in the morning to commute an hour and a half to Queens to teach two or three classes that might be spread out during the day, and then to come to the Graduate Center in the evening and take another two or three classes. It was just mental, as we'd, as we'd say here in Ireland. But, you know, these are the kinds of things you do. You put in the time. So a big piece about being a faculty member is really just like that publishing piece and publishing regularly. So can you just talk about some advice that you would give for specifically like early career academics who are potentially having trouble getting those first few articles published and how they go about it and what publishing is like for you? Of course. It is difficult these days to try and publish things, especially as we go more online. We're seeing a lot more journals and, and blogs and things of that nature than we had in the past. So some of our opportunities seem to be lessening a bit, but that's not really the case. There are also widening areas of where we can publish. You know what? Don't put pressure on yourself to think that, oh, I have to have a book before I can go on the market, or, oh, I have to have a certain number of articles before I go on the market. That may be true for some institutions, but not a lot of them. There is flexibility. What I would say, however, is that it's really important to try to publish in peer-reviewed journals and in book chapters, reviews in any way that you can. And again, you know, you try to aim for the higher journals, but they should all be peer-reviewed if possible. Be very careful. If you have to pay for it, it's probably not peer-reviewed. And so what you can do is to find out these things is really try to get help from people. 
do not be afraid to ask for help. I've relied on people's kindness and help and assistance throughout my career. And now I'm trying to give back as well to students and faculty who are in the position that I was once in. Go to conferences. Conferences help you to establish a network of people. Mine is a global network at this point. At these conferences, you make friends. You learn from people who are doing what you're doing. Using your colleagues to help is not compromising you as a scholar. It's making you a better scholar. Don't try to do it alone. Also enlist the help of your advisor. One of the best things that my advisor at CUNY had said was, you know, I'm your advisor for life. Your advisor doesn't stop being your advisor, a good one, once you get a degree. So I also ask my advisor still, you know, if, if I have a question about an article, if he could just give a look or give some advice. Do use those networks and those people. You don't stop learning. Also, a lot of times, again, at those conferences that you attend, there'll be proceedings, peer-reviewed proceedings for books or volumes. If you're going to go for that book, though, you're working on that book and you want to get it out, my best advice to you would be put a time limit on it. You just can't be writing that book forever and ever and ever because people are going to pass you by, you know, either who have books or other journal articles. You need to have a time limit. If it's not working out, don't keep trying to push it. Go for something else. Those are great tips. And I think as we're having this conversation, the more things I'm pulling out is like two key things that are general for everyone is really asking for help and being adaptable. And I think it's so important. People are not afraid to ask for help. So I know right now you're currently in Ireland, which is amazing. And I know you've in the past, maybe not right now, but have traveled quite a bit for research. Can you talk about how you find travel and fellowship opportunities that are the right fit for you? Yes, I love to speak about that. I believe travel is paramount. Not only is it good for your soul and for your mind, but it's also great for building your global network. I have colleagues now in Sydney, in Italy, in Ireland, Israel, the UAE, Japan, and Canada. And these networks have primarily been fostered through my travel and my conferencing. Now, I know that conferencing is expensive, so look for the fellowship opportunities. All those little $200 and $300, they start to add up. My school fortunately has small grants for these kinds of activities, and I use them to try to fund some of this travel and conferencing. In the U.S., we do have the National Endowment for the Humanities. However, they are limited kinds of grants. In the European Union and in Ireland, you have grants such as the Co-Fund Fellows, you have the Irish Research Council, you have the Mary Curies. There are many opportunities in the humanities. So I would just say, don't be afraid. Do your research. It takes a lot of research to find these things. But don't limit yourself. Don't say, oh, yep, they're never going to consider me just because I'm from the U.S. Far from it. Sometimes they're very open to researchers from the United States. We'll be right back to our episode after this quick tip from Miriam Miller. I want to talk about fellowships, which, in my opinion, are notoriously difficult to define because it's a little bit of a catch-all term for a variety of different financial and educational opportunities. Typically, I would say that a fellowship is often a short-term opportunity ranging from a few months to a few years. It can exist in the educational realm, so someone might be in a particular fellowship program during a program of study, for example, a master's degree or someone might pursue a fellowship 
after they've finished a degree and are looking to potentially transition into a new field and they want to gain more exposure to it or they want to continue to develop their skills in that area. So there are lots of different kinds of fellowships and they exist in lots of different sectors for people with varying levels of experience and education. And I think that's what makes them so tricky for people to understand. Oftentimes you might find them in the sciences, you might find them in nonprofits or government or healthcare, and the structure and the way in which they work is often different. Sometimes it could be in the form of tuition or mission, sometimes it could be in the form of leadership development training or opportunities for research or language learning or teaching or launching an initiative or supporting the work of an organization, I think they do provide a really terrific opportunity for people to continue to develop their skills and grow as professionals. And I think for organizations that fund these fellowships, it provides a great way to identify potential new leaders in the field. So I encourage everyone to take a look at what might be out there in terms of a fellowship and see whether or not there might be one that's right for you. And now, back to the episode. As we're chatting, it seems like you have a lot going on more and more, which is a good problem to have, a lot of things happening. But how do you balance everything? How do you balance all the responsibilities that come with teaching and your research and research interests and keeping up with publishing? There's a lot happening. So I would love to just hear how you're balancing and managing everything right now. Again, it's this this idea that you just have to split up things in manageable pieces. I had been on sabbatical for a year and now recently come off it to begin the fall semester teaching again with three classes remotely for the first time. So, you know, I got a big wake up call again to back. Oh, yep. Back to manage the time like I had been before. Personally, I make a lot of lists. I love to put the line through the task to make sure that it's done. And this has been something I've been doing for basically my entire career as an academic. Lately, because of all the sort of background noise, that we have in our lives, I've had to turn my phone on silent. And so when I'm working and going into deep work, I really try to do that. And then the last thing I would say, and I can't stress this enough, is you've got to do your activities and your passions. I find that if I take a walk per day, or if I go for a run in the evening, if I read something other than academic work before bed, these are the things that keep me on track I agree. I'm the same with lists. I think having a list and being able to cross things off and feel accomplished really helps keep me moving and keep me motivated to going. So I 100% agree. You mentioned it very briefly, but do you think it's important to have passions that you pursue that are separate from your research and teaching? Yes, I could not have accomplished what I have in my career without strong passions. I have always been an avid Irish dancer, a runner, a ballet dancer, and a horseback rider. And these passions all together have helped me to create that dedication that you need, the drive that you need to engage in academia these days. Running burns off the crazy, I like to say, when things get overwhelming. It's a place where I can work out ideas in my head, where my next book chapter is going to go, or where my next article is going to go. 
The horseback riding especially, it's something I've done since I was young. While I don't have very many opportunities to do it when I'm in New York City, I do try to take horseback riding holidays. And the benefit of that is that when you have a thousand pound animal that you have to try to create a relationship with, you can't worry about where your article is going to go or if you had a bad class. You can't, you can't sort of fixate on those things. You have to focus and be in the moment. I really like these sports and activities where you can escape for a while the, the pressures of the career and try to just focus and engage on one thing in that moment. That's so fascinating. And I think, yeah, like you said, it's that nice mental break because you need to be in the moment. Because if you're not in a moment, something can go wrong. Exactly. You'll be, you'll be on the ground before you know it. Yeah, and that's not good. We don't, we don't want that. But yeah, I think that's so important, finding those things that really take you out of work. So what new research are you working on now that you're especially excited about? Well, with COVID again, it's some bits of challenges trying to pull together the pieces of the things that I had set out to do in May of last year. But I have some new research projects that I'm very excited about. I've gotten more into the cinema aspects, literature and cinema. So I'm currently working on an article that compares James Joyce's Ulysses and Paolo Sorrentino's The Great Beauty. It's a film. So it's looking at the flaneur and the city in those, the literature, the book, and then in the movie. I still have my book to finish as well. You know, I was talking about don't wait too long to do it. I'm still working away at that. So it's a long-term project. And also I'm starting to work a little bit on Irish traveler literature. So the travelers are an indigenous group of people in Ireland that have typically been discriminated against. There's been some great strides in trying to get the traditional literature, folklore, and culture out there. So this is a project that I've worked on most recently, and I'm really excited to continue it. I would love to just know what's next for you in your career. So in the short term, I will continue my fellowship research at University College Dublin. After that, I have another fellowship coming up at the Marshes Library in Dublin, which is the oldest library in the city. Um, they take all kinds of old books and show crazy things that are in them, and they're really fascinating. So I'll be doing some research over in the library there. But really what I want to continue to do is to focus on working across the disciplines and working in different universities between New York City, Ireland, and potentially Italy at some point as well. I really love my global research and being able to have the opportunities to travel and to, to conduct this research in these different places. I want it to continue and I, and I hope there's some ways that I can make that happen. This has been a, a great conversation I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you and learning more and digging more into your career and your story. So thank you for being with us today. If you want to learn more about the services that are offered at the Wasserman Center, you can log onto our career portal, Handshake, through your NYU homepage. Today's episode was hosted by Joe Mercadante with episode guest, Christina Verade. We're produced by Miriam Miller and Lily Smith, edited by Lily Smith, and created with support from Nia Beresford, Daniel Crystal, Dana Rosa, Haley Garofalo, Diana Mendez, Carrie Pannoni, and Sarah Rosenthal. That's all in a day's work. Thanks for listening.